there is a transition here in the Gospel of John. So this transition is from one of Jesus' last time of teaching with the disciples, the last moments after the, the, the supper that he instituted with them, this theological instruction, the most important things he wants to leave with them, to now we see the completion of his betrayal. What he's told us the last few chapters is going to happen, is going to happen, it is now here. And so what we've covered in the last few chapters from 13 to 17, some of the richest in, that we have in Scripture. And this may have just been, especially 14 through 17, may have been as little as 15 minutes of Jesus teaching them. It may be just the highlights, there may have been a lot more, but whatever it is, it's complete to us and it's so rich. Because what we've seen over the last few months and over the last few weeks is Jesus' love and his concern for his disciples, not concern for himself, not trying to save himself and let himself off, off the hook like we would in our own flesh, but his love for them, his intercession for them, his care for them, that they might be one, that they might be in him and in the Father and secured forever. And so this is the nature of much of the Christian life. There are times of deep theological study where, where we, we recharge our minds and we stay rooted in the doctrines that we see in Scripture. Because they prepare us for the darkness that so often comes in our lives. And this is what we're going to see because everything Jesus just told them was to prepare them for what's going to happen in these next couple chapters. And God's word is to sustain them and us. Jesus knows they need teaching before they come to trial. Just like we need to stand on teaching before our trials. And we don't always apply this as we should as Christians. And we know this in, in sports analogies and military analogies. You know, we, we know that in order to be successful, you have to train. There has to be repetition. There has to be study. There has to be practice. Because before you go to the battle or before you go to the, to the game, once you get in the middle of the fight, it is too late to learn something new. It's too late to go to the classroom. And so that's why our soldiers prepare again and again and again, and athletes prepare again and again and again. And that's why Paul uses both of these analogies, that of an athlete and that of a soldier. Because that is the, the, the Christian life, to be founded in the word of God, to listen to Jesus' words and hide them in our heart because trials are coming and darkness is coming. And that's what we need to draw on in those, those times. Uh, one of the books back there, uh, The Women of the Word, Jen Wilkin is a great Bible teacher, one of Cherie's favorites. She uses this analogy, so I have to give her, her credit for it, that her big concern with, with women is that most women, and most people for that matter, approach scripture reading like a debit account, something that is external to them. Let me go, and I'm going to pull out 20 bucks for what I need for now. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look to God's word so I can grab something that will get me through till 5 o'clock or to get me through the evening, but it's this external thing that I, I draw on when I need it. But it should be more like a savings account where daily we are making deposits, and it is something that internally we, we save up. So it is a word hidden in our heart, a wellspring of life that is within us. And I love that picture because so often we just, hey, what can I pull out of this? What can I pull out of the ATM or Cash App or whatever you, guys, you kids are using now? But, but we should have this deposit within us as Jesus does with his disciples. He gives them rich theological foundation so that they may stand and they may draw on it when difficulty comes. 
And we learn that often what we are studying is in preparation for what we're about to face. God uses his word to prepare us. Because the more we are taught and shaped by God's word, the more we are adequately prepared for struggles, for temptations, for trials and persecutions, and also prepared for blessings and for success, and so that we can humbly approach the highs and lows of life. And here's where we find ourselves. The darkest two chapters in the entire Gospel of John, chapter 18 and chapter 19. We're going to see Jesus' betrayal, his arrest, his trial, his, his crucifixion. And what does Jesus do directly before this? Gives them valuable instruction. So we should remember that as a lesson to us. Because again, when you face trials, you can only draw on what you have already saved up. You can't begin to save once the trials start. And so Jesus knows to prepare them with his word. And we're going to see all of these dark attributes that happen. This happens at night. But there is evil at play here. There is, there is deceit in Jesus' betrayal and Jesus' arrest. And the darkness that marks these next couple chapters will get darker and darker before the dawn. And so the next few weeks are going to be more somber and it's going to force us to take a realistic look at darkness and its sin and what Christ went through for us. But these must be fulfilled. God in flesh, the I am, must go through this. This is unavoidable and he approaches it boldly as we're going to see this morning. He must be tried, he must be crucified, and he must be resurrected for redemption. And we're going to see that the light of the gospel, the light of our Savior, shines the brightest in the midst of the deepest darkness. And what I love about this passage that we're going to study this morning is it is vivid in its detail. That John, writing some 40 to even 50 years after the other gospel writers, includes details that they don't. John is familiar with the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, Luke, who summarize the ministry of of Jesus. But John has a theological purpose. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to use some of those details from Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and we're going to use them to kind of supplement and round out the narrative. But we're going to stick with John's theological purpose. So I want us to kind of get this, this full-orbed view of what's going on here, but not to lose John's purpose in writing. So if you would, grab your Bibles and pick up in John 18, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell on the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? 
So the band of soldiers and their captains and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, before the foundation of the world, you knew our sin. You knew that we, in and of ourselves, are full of death and darkness. And you knew that only Jesus of Nazareth, fully God, fully man, could redeem that darkness. And in these moments and in these next few weeks, in these, these next two chapters, Lord, let us not lose, lose sight of the depth of the darkness that we deserve, the depth of the darkness that the rest of the world is under, and the light of our salvation that came to earth for our sin to reconcile us to you. This gospel is good news, and it is to be rejoiced and to be proclaimed from the rooftops, but it is not to be taken lightly because it came at a very high cost. Let us remember when we reflect on the cost of your love for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So beginning in verse 1, when Jesus had spoken these things, everything that just happened, he just finishes his high priestly intercessory prayer, and then they go out. So I want to put this up on the screen. This is in the the ESV study Bible. It's a, a helpful map to kind of know what's going on here. So maybe a little tough to see up on the screen, but the Kidron Valley, this river that we're going to talk about in, in just a, a moment, they'd have to go outside of the city. It's outside of the, the temple. They would have been uh, in someone's home in an upper room. Then they're going out to the Mount of Olives, which is just east of the city, and there's a garden in there. Now, obviously, this is 2,000 years ago. We don't know exactly where each of these places are, but we know where the temple was, we know where the mountain is, we know in general where, where the garden is. So this is the journey that they took. And John tells us, and the other gospel writers tell us that this journey was taken often. And so it's good to kind of know where we are spatially, that they're moving outside of the city. And this is important because the brook Kidron, it means dark waters. And why this is significant is when we see this river mentioned, it's a small river that, that, that floods in the rainy season. But this is where consistently every righteous king took idols and destroyed them. Asa and Josiah and Hezekiah and the Levites, whenever there were unclean things and idols, they took them and either broke them and threw them into the brook Kidron or on the other side to bring them outside of the city. There's this recognition of bringing detestable things outside the city. But there's one instance that should bring to mind for the Hebrew readers here. Now, most of you know another king. His name is David. And David had a son, Absalom. And like every loving son, he wants to kill his father. But, thank you. But what David does is David flees from Jerusalem from the one that he loves, who's trying to kill him, and his beloved come with him. And David, in tears, crosses the brook Kidron to go into the wilderness to safety. Sound familiar? Now, we don't get the details here, but Matthew and Mark tell us that the mountain that he's going to, it's the Mount of Olives, and the garden is the Garden of Gethsemane. And so we can bring these details together from the other Gospels. 
This is not the first time that Jesus went here. This is a popular spot for Jesus. He would, he would teach and then he'd go away to pray. And so the disciples knew this, and of course Judas knew this. And so here's where we pick up. So when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas is no fool. Judas is a fool. But he's also, he's also very conniving. He knows what's going to happen. He knows as soon as Jesus teaches, he goes and, and prays. So that's a good exercise for all of us. When we are teaching, when we are sharing our faith, the next thing we should do is go to the Lord and entrust what we've just done to him, as Jesus does. But Jesus is no fool either. He knows that up until this point, he has been avoiding handing himself over to the authorities. They have tried to take him and seize him, and he would not let them. But he also knows that they're people pleasers. He also knows that they won't, they won't take him in front of others. So Jesus voluntarily brings himself outside of the city as if he's an unclean thing. The sin he's about to take on is taken outside of the city so that he can be arrested. Jesus serves himself up and walks into this garden in the darkness. It should be important to realize that what was lost in the garden, the tabernacle with God, the dwelling with God that we see lost in Genesis 3, God tabernacles himself and walks into a garden to restore what was lost in the first one. There's a lot of heavy symbolism here. And so Judas, having procured a band of soldiers, this word here is is a cohort. And so a cohort is a tenth of a legion. It's anywhere between 500 and 600 men. We don't know if that's exactly how many were there, but there's a great deal of men, and we we know this. There's, There's a large amount, way too many for one guy. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers, not just Roman soldiers, but also officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees. So these are Levitical temple guards, Roman soldiers and Jewish soldiers together. And if that wasn't enough, he brings two armies. They come with lanterns and torches and weapons. They're expecting an earthly king. They're going to find something very different than what they expect in Christ. And so this cowardly cohort, they act in darkness, as is their nature, as is the spiritual nature of those who sent them. They can't do this by daylight because they are not upstanding. They are not righteous. They must act in their nature. So they do it in night. And the irony here is that they are coming against the light of the world with these little man-made torches and the equivalents of flashlights. And they try in their man-made light to conquer true light with darkness. But Jesus tells us that darkness does not want to be exposed. That's why it does its work at night, but it always will. And so in the moment, the disciples, you can imagine as they they hear these armies come and, and they see everything that's about to happen, the fear that will come over them. And so I want us to just think about this for a moment. As the the who's who of the world approaches, Luke tells us that not only are these officers here, but the Pharisees come and the elders. This is a big gathering. And it seems intimidating. I just want to challenge you for a moment. This is the exact nature of our spiritual attacks. Because our cowardly attacks, they happen in darkness. 
and they happen in, in solitude, and they seem scary. They seem like it's a serious threat, but they have no power. And many of you are too willing to be bullied by the voices of darkness that come in the middle of the night, that creep into your thoughts and try to make you forget that the Savior is standing right there. The forces of darkness have no power against the light. They are driven by deceit, and by their lies they attack under cover of darkness. Sometimes they make a very compelling case, and it seems like there's some validity here. They're they're really going to take Jesus. Something horrible is going to happen. But we know the end of the story. We know that they have no final say because the light of the world has come to conquer the darkness, has come to put death to death forever and to conquer sin. And so just as a pastoral application, when I talk to so many of you, remember what Jesus did here before the darkest hours of the disciples' lives. He taught them. He gave them his word. And don't forget to root his word in your hearts. And when these cowardly cohorts come in the middle of the night, with lies and deception, we stay rooted in the words of our Savior. Because at our Savior's face, every aspect of darkness is exposed, and we see that in verse 4. They came with torches and weapons, and Jesus, knowing all this would happen to them, he came forward. This is amazing. So they're coming at him with armies. They should be on the offensive. He steps out of the shadows and comes forward. He is the light and steps into the moonlight so that they see him. He becomes the aggressor in the situation. They come after him and he comes out to them because he knows everything. This didn't catch him by surprise. They aren't pulling one over on him. And Jesus comes forward and says to them, who do you seek? He makes the initiation. He knows all things. John told us this detail for a reason. He's not saying whom do you seek because he doesn't know. He wants them to say it. He wants their treachery to be on their their lips. This must be fulfilled. And he, he tells us in chapter 10 that he willingly lays down his life. No one will take it from me. He is willingly laying down his life before them. And he promises this, I will lay down my life for you. And his hour has not yet come, and his hour has not yet come. And when his hour comes, he boldly comes out and says, who do you seek? And they respond, verse 5. Jesus of Nazareth. Now this is the name that would strike fear into the Jews. What the apostles preach. Look at this in Acts chapter 2. Who are the apostles preaching? They say, who are we seeking? We're seeking Jesus of Nazareth. So this is Peter in Acts chapter 2. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. What they sought to do, they sought Jesus of Nazareth to put him to death, to to put down this off-start rebellion became the rallying cry of the early church. Jesus of Nazareth, who you crucified, according to lawless men, but according to the full foreknowledge and plan of God. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. Jesus' response here should not be lost on us. Whom do you seek? 
Jesus of Nazareth. And he said to them, I am he. Uh, I'm a little frustrated. I love the ESV typically, but I'm frustrated with this translation. I've been looking all week. Every English translation says, I am he. But in the Greek, this is two words. Ego, me. I am. We're seeking Jesus of Nazareth. I am. We try to make Jesus a better conversationalist and include the he, but it's not there in the language. This is John, the gospel of the I am. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the light of the world. We're seeking Jesus of Nazareth. I am. John's purpose is for us to know and never forget the divinity of Jesus Christ. In the midst of the darkness, he stands boldly, fully man, fully God. I am. That is why we're going to see what we see in verse 6. But I love the little jab that John throws in here. You notice he says twice, we already know who Judas is. But he reminds us in verse 2, now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, Verse 5, Judas, who betrayed him, was standing there. Judas, he betrayed him. In case you forgot, Judas, that guy, he was standing right there. And what happens when Jesus says, I am? When Jesus said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. Imagine this scene. This band of the, the, the mightiest warriors, Jew and Gentile, torches and pitchforks like he's Frankenstein. And he says, I am, and they fall down like a house of cards. The power of his voice brings them to their knees. And if that wasn't enough, he kicks them while they're down. Because again, he asks them, whom do you seek? I think you know what you said the first time. Now that you're on your knees, why don't you answer me again? Whom do you seek? Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus leans in again. There is no wavering here. There is no second thoughts. Look at verse 8. Jesus answered them, I told you that I am. Again, ego a me. I told you that I am. Do what you came to do. You're seeking me. Here I am. Take me. Again, three times John mentions this. This is not by accident. When things are repeated in Scripture, we pay attention. When things are repeated three times, like holy, 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 it is to be known to the nth degree that holy, holy, holy means God's glory goes on forever. God's holiness knows no bounds. I am, I am, I am. Jesus is God, and John puts a stamp on that. Just like next week, we're going to see Peter's treachery repeated three times. But he says, I am And now that you have me, if you seek me, let these men go. Ever the concern for his disciples. This is the gospel. The gospel says, take me, let them live. This is the gospel. Our Savior says, kill me, spare them. This is his love for them. In the moment of his betrayal, in the last hour of his prayer, on the cross, in his resurrection, his concern is for his beloved. Take me, spare them. And this was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. 
Of those who you gave me, I have lost not one. So Jesus alludes to this. Chapter 6, chapter 10, and says it explicitly in chapter 17. I have fulfilled what you have, what you have given me, Father. I have not lost one. And this is an essential theme throughout the Gospel of John. According to the perfect foreknowledge of God, those given him, he will not lose one of the eleven. And as we saw last chapter, he will not lose any that are given to him. I have kept all that you have given me. I will never lose them. He came for his own. And he sets them aside so that they're spared because they must go out into the world and they must proclaim this message. They must proclaim this Jesus of Nazareth, who the world wanted to arrest and kill, but who died for their sin and rose again, that whoever might believe in him might have eternal life. They must be spared so the gospel could go out. So that's what John's doing here. He's emphasizing Jesus' physical deliverance for them is also the spiritual deliverance. He will save them in bodily form, but he will save them forever, and no one can snatch them out of his hand. But John is also doing something very interesting here. Now, we take this for granted because when we pick up our Bibles, we read Old and New Testament as Scripture. But every other time in the Gospel of John, when he says, this was to fulfill the word that had been spoken, when he speaks of the fulfilled word, it is always Old Testament prophets. Now, John is equating the spoken words of Jesus with authoritative scripture. He is saying that when prophecy has spoken that is, that is breathed out by God, God in the flesh, it is to be beheld as scripture. And so now we see that Jesus' words are scripture on par with every other fulfilled prophecy that John has alluded to up until this point. Not only will Jesus save them, But Jesus continues the revelation of God for his people. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. Peter's trying to take his head off. And why does he include right ear? If Peter's coming down trying to take his head off and this guy moves just a little bit or Peter's got bad aim, he's going to take his ear off. And so Peter, always ready to jump into action, impetuous Peter jumps in. But here's where Luke can help us. So we're going to slow down. I kind of move quickly through these first few verses, but we're going to slow down over the next couple and look at the other Gospels, and I want to see the details here because this is important for our purpose. So if you would, turn to Luke's Gospel. It's the book right before John. We're going to be in chapter 22. And Luke, the the doctor, remember here, is going to complete this picture for us. Luke 22, beginning in verse 49. And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? So Peter's not the only one who has this idea. Peter goes off half-cocked, but not completely on his own. But before Jesus can answer them, this is quintessential Peter right here. And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. And Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and he healed him. Amazing common grace. That one who came to deliver him over to be crucified, Jesus takes pity on him and knows that blood will not be shed by them. I won't lose any of you, but my purpose must be fulfilled. This will not be about an earthly war. 
And then Jesus said to the chief priests, and this is where Luke includes additional details. In John, we get that the armies come. Here, Luke tells us that the chief priests and the officers of the temple and the elders who had come out against them, now Jesus speaks to the leaders. Have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs? Jesus calls out how ridiculous this is. You come out against me with an army, I'm one man. The most threatening thing I've ever raised is a whip and flipped over some tables. When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. Jesus knows their heart. He knows their intention. He knows that they are cowards. He knows that they would not dare face him in the public eye because they had no just cause against him. But they are are from darkness. They are of the power of darkness, and it must be so. So he calls out their hypocrisy here. So continuing back in John, Simon Peter, he strikes the, the servant. Jesus puts the ear back on. Malchus gets a, gets a nice um, you know, end credit here. And Jesus says to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Now here's where Matthew can help us. Because Jesus expands on this in Matthew. So turn to Matthew chapter 26. Because what we're seeing here is that I love Peter's zealousness, but he misunderstands the kingdom of God. So while you're turning to Matthew 26, keep your finger in John 18 because we're going to jump back in a second. Matthew 26, look at verse 52. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. This is not that kind of fight, Peter. Do you think that I can appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? Forget what picture you get of Hallmark greeting cards and Hallmark movies of what angels are. They're not pretty women with wings. They are warriors with flaming swords. If I need you to fight, Peter, I will call down legions of angels. But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? Jesus' purpose is not to win some skirmish. This must be fulfilled so that sin and darkness can be perished forever. I am fighting a battle you cannot imagine, Peter, so put your little sword away. There are bigger weapons at play here. And he kind of reiterates this back in John 18. He tells him in verse 36. We'll get here in a few weeks. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not of this world. Why did he put the sword back? Why must this happen in the darkness? Why did they not fight? This is not his kingdom. This perishing world that is affected by darkness and and sin will one day pass away. But his kingdom will never pass away. But the kingdom cannot be ushered in until redemption is complete, until recreation begins. And this must happen at the cross. So Jesus calms down his little pit bull at his side who's just ready to bark and jump at anybody. And you gotta love Peter. I love Peter. I love that Lord, I've got to do something. I will say something. I've got to do something. I've got to fight. Come on. Point, point me at him. You know, like those, those old cartoons. Like, let me at him. Let me at him. You know, Peter's, and Peter gets so excited, and he loves a good fight. So many of us identify with that. We love a good fight. Let me at him. I want to fight. I want to fight now. Jesus doesn't need you to fight for him. Jesus doesn't need your little sword. Jesus doesn't need you to cut off the ear of a servant. 
He has legions of angels with flaming swords. This is way better than a little knife. But so often for us, we try to take control into our own hands. We try to fight battles that are way above our, our pay grade. We, we think that Jesus needs us to bail him out. How often do we take things in our own hands? How often before going to our Savior and asking, before the, he can even answer the question, should we take up swords? Cut his ear off. How many of us are like that? Shoot, ready, aim. Oh, wait a second. Was I supposed to figure out what was going on first before I start trying to kill people? I love Peter's zealousness. And it's, it's to be commended that he is so fiercely wanting to defend his Savior. Zealousness is a good thing, but zealousness without discernment is a waste of energy. Zealousness with discernment is a greater thing. Peter's not there yet, but he will be. Becomes a great pillar of the faith, and when you read his, his letters, this is a man with zealousness and discernment. So many of you have no idea what, what Peter's talking about. Many of you are like, man, I would have booked it. Many of you, it's so much easier to run away than it is to stand. So it is sinful when Peter tries to presume upon Christ and take things into his own hands without trusting him. But it's also sinful when we don't trust him and we, we run away from the name of Jesus and we run away from difficulty. And many times, our inaction becomes sinful. We are called to stand for the name of Jesus, maybe not fight to our death, but to proclaim his name and stand in truth. And we punt. We'd rather not deal with it. We'll live the fight again another day. In each of these instances, whether we try to jump out before God, or we run away, or we, we stand in fear, if our concern is not the will of God and the exaltation of Christ, it shows a lack of trust, and it shows sin. And so... Jesus, after telling him to put away this sword, he then asks a question. In the way this is phrased, Jesus expects only one answer. This is phrased so that Peter will respond in the affirmative. Back in verse 11 of chapter 18, Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? He expects Peter to say, Well, of course you're supposed to do what the Father asks you to do. Do you not expect me to do what the Father has planned for me? Don't try to put your plans ahead of mine. Don't try to fight a battle I'm not asking you to fight. The Father has something greater for me. I must obey. And what you don't understand is I'm doing this for your sake. You don't want to stop this, Peter. This must happen because without this, there is no redemption. There is no life for you. There is no hope for you. I must be delivered over. This cup that the Father has given me, I do for you. So now we're going to get into the interesting part of this. Because we can read right over this. This cup. So we're going to spend a few moments here, because I don't think we really grasp the fullness of this language. For those of you who are faint at heart, I need to sit up a little straight for the next few minutes. Because biblically speaking, a cup can represent many things, but it's not the shape, it's what the cup contains. So we need to ask ourselves, what does Jesus' cup contain? And it can mean many things, but what we see most often in the Old Testament is cup refers to the wrath and judgment of God against sin. And so Jesus' cup, what he must take on is a cup of God's wrath. His own wrath, the wrath of the Father poured out on him, his sacrificial death, his cup of suffering. 
Now, we can read John and just gloss over this. When he says, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? But Luke helps us with the more full picture. So again, turn back to Luke, chapter 22. A little bit before what we read. So what had just happened prior to this? And we need to know, John doesn't include these details, but John knows if you're reading my letter, you've already read Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And here's what Luke tells us in Luke chapter 22. So Jesus prays a different prayer after his high priestly prayer on the Mount of Olives. We're going to pick up in verse 39. And when he came out, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him, and when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about stones and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Okay, again, he's, he's praying for this cup, and he's praying for it to be removed. Just give me, let me give you a hint. Every time you ask God for something, this is your formula. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. We do not order God around. We can petition him and we can go before him. But just like Jesus is a perfect example, God did not answer every one of Jesus' prayers, but in faith. He prayed, not my will, but yours. He prayed perfectly in his humanity. Now here's where we need to pay attention. If Jesus is praying for this cup, how does he pray? And there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. God in the flesh needs some strength. Why? And being in agony. It's this visual of shaking. He is trembling here. He prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. When he knows he's going to take on the full wrath of God, he trembles. He's in agony. And sweat turns into blood on his forehead. You have never prayed till your sweat turned into blood, I guarantee you. Why? We don't even know how to put into words the wrath of God, the cup that Jesus is going to take. But I'm going to show you. So turn to Jeremiah chapter 25. And so for us, if our gospel, if the end of our gospel is Jesus loves you, which is true, but we do not understand the depth of our sin and the darkness that is within us and what cost Jesus loved us. We do not understand the gospel. So we're going to talk about this cup that God pronounces against the wicked nations of the world. So Jeremiah chapter 25, I'm going to start in verse 15. Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, speaking to Jeremiah, prophesying against all the nations of the earth, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath, And make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. They shall drink and stagger and be crazed because of the sword that I am sending among them. So I took the cup from the Lord's hand and made all the nations to whom the Lord sent me drink it. Jerusalem and the cities of Judea, its kings and its officials, to make them a desolation, a waste, a hissing and a curse. And as it is this day. So he goes on to list them. We're not going to go through them all. But Egypt, Moab, Gaza, Tamar. Zimri, Media, you go all the way down, skip down to verse 27. Then you shall say to them, This says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Drink and be drunk and vomit, fall and rise no more, because the sword that I am sending among you. And if they refuse to accept the cup from your hand to drink, then you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, You must drink. For behold, I begin to work disaster 
at the city that is called by my name, speaking against Jerusalem, and you shall go unpunished? I'm going to punish Jerusalem. I'm going to punish the Jews. And you think you other nations are going to get away unscathed? You shall not go unpunished, for I am summoning a sword against all the inhabitants of the earth, declares the Lord of hosts. You, therefore, shall prophesy against them all these words and say to them, The Lord will roar from on high and from his holy mountain utter his voice. He will roar mightily against his fold and shout like those who tread grapes against all the inhabitants of the earth. And the clamor will resound to the ends of the earth, for the Lord has an indictment against the nations. He is entering into judgment with all flesh, and the wicked he will put to the sword, declares the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, disaster is going forth from nation to nation, and a great tempest is stirring from the furthest parts of the earth. And those who pierced by the Lord on that day shall extend from one end of the earth to the other. They shall not be lamented or gathered or buried. They shall be dung on the surface of the ground. That is the cup that Jesus took for us. That is what we deserve. That is the wrath of God. And just words on a page should bring us to tears. And that is what Jesus took for us. That is the cup that he said, I must take. Because all sin must be punished. And the wrath of God will not be quenched until every sin is punished. Either Jesus takes the punishment or you do. Look at Revelation chapter 14. We see this fulfillment Because the lamb who takes on the sins of the world will now be witness while God's wrath is poured out on everyone who does not worship him. Revelation chapter 14, verse 9 through 12. Last book in your Bible, chapter 14, verse 9. And then another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into a cup of his anger. This is straight diesel. There is no cream in this one. He has poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb, the Lamb who drank the cup of God's wrath for his own will be witness to those who drink the cup of God's wrath on their behalf. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its images and whoever receives the mark in its name. This is terrible news, right? Don't get discouraged when you read Revelation, because look at the next verse. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commands of God and their faith in Jesus. This is not bad news if your faith is in Jesus. If your faith is in Jesus, he drank the cup of God's wrath on your behalf. If your faith is not in Jesus, everything I just read is on your head. What greatest salvation we have that our Father would send His Son to drink that cup for us. He took on the cup of His wrath so we could take on His cup. Because there are other images of cup in the Old Testament. We know Psalm 23, a cup that is overflowing at the table of our God that is full of blessing. Psalm 116 speaks of a cup of salvation. This is the cup that we remember in communion. On the screen is going to be 1 Corinthians 10, 16 through 17. Paul says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not participation in the blood of Christ? The cup that he drank, his blood becomes his blood poured out. The wrath of God put on him becomes our cup of blessing. 
the bread that we break? Is it not participation in the body of Christ? Because there's one bread. We who are many are one body, for we all partake in one bread. The unity that we talked about in the body last week, it is accomplished by the blood of Jesus. The wrath of God satisfies for us that we might drink one cup and be united in him, this cup of salvation that is overflowing. Don't skip over this last line in verse 11. This is the greatness of the gospel. But I want to add just a couple practical details here in verse 12. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. Jew and Gentile alike are in agreement to arrest the anointed of God so that he might die and make propitiation, perfect sacrifice for Jew and Gentile alike. Committing no crime with no formal charges against him. This was all done in secret, in the dead of night, under darkness, in conniving and deceit. Darkness is prevalent in this whole process. There's a couple details here I want you to see. Jesus was arrested and bound. Whenever they would take a sacrifice before the altar, they would bind it first. Jesus, as the sacrifice, is bound first. As the lamb led to the slaughter, he opened not his mouth. He could have called down angels from heaven to destroy everyone who stood against him, but yet he went like a sheep to the slaughter. Because the one who came to free the captive and and loose the bounds of sin and death must first be captured and bound so that sin and death would be put to death by his death. And at this point, Matthew and Luke, or Matthew and Mark, tell us that all the disciples fled. They did not listen to Jesus' words just a few minutes ago. We can be a little easy on them. Without regeneration, without the Holy Spirit working within them, without new life through the light of the, of, of the world, darkness terrifies them. But let us look to them as an example. How quickly we forget. Jesus just told them, I'm going to be turned over. One of you is going to betray me, but I'm sending you my spirit. I will not let you fall into the hand of the enemy. We know these things, but how quickly we forget. We could just stand in our scriptures and then we believe the lies of darkness again. They just heard this great encouragement. And the disciples, just like Israel, we've been studying this in Deuteronomy, they hear the promises of God and they see the salvation of the Lord bringing them out of Egypt. And they turn back to false gods. This is the pattern of the human experience. We hear God's word. We know the promises of God. We see him work. And then we flee. But these cowards who come in the middle of the night, this is why we need to be reminded of the gospel. This is why we need Christ. This is why he must come. Because without the cross, pre-cross, we have no hope on our own. Every one of us would scatter just like they did. If he did not go to the cross, if he did not give us his righteousness, if he did not pay the price, if he did not reconcile us to God, we would flee like roaches when the lights come on. They all fled, and they had no idea what Jesus was about to do do for them. They all fled when he's about to take this cup for them, and yet he still does it. The cup that he would take, the full darkness of God's wrath pulled out, poured out on sin. He voluntarily gave up his life for the reconciliation of the world. 
So it's going to get darker before the light of resurrection day over the next couple weeks. I just want to encourage you. If you are in darkness, do not leave in darkness. Do not continue in darkness when the light of the world offers salvation by faith in him. And if you have faith in Christ, rejoice. Because that cup, everything that we just talked about, every dark thing that we've covered in this passage and in this sermon no longer applies to you because of Jesus Christ. I want to read Psalm 27 as our prayer of close this morning. You can turn there with me or you can just listen. But I think it's very appropriate for the sentiment that we covered this morning. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise around me, yet I will be confident. One thing I have asked the Lord that, will I, will, that I will seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life and gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me and will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, Lord, your face, Lord, I do seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off. Forsake me not. O God of my salvation, for my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord. Lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong, and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Amen.